whenever you're running into this kind of a problem with the regulators, you need to get an attorney like me involved. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. I'm Dave Arnold. I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. And today, we're going to tackle a topic that we've never discussed before on this podcast. It's something that few people really know or understand, but it's also something that can affect every single right-of-way project in the United States. Is it relocation? No, it's not relocation, Kristen. Dang it. It's wetlands. Hmm. Wetlands. What are they? How do they affect things? What are the rules? And how can they bring your project to a halt? Who's our guest? Well, today we have Jim Lang with us. Jim Lang protects people and companies who live, work, and play on the water, especially in proceedings before the Virginia Marine Resources Commission, or VMRC. Although he routinely handles all aspects of waterfront or riparian property law, maritime and admiralty law, and environmental law, clients consistently turn to Jim when they need help at the VMRC. His strong focus in this area gives him a major competitive advantage over those less skilled in this area, which consistently benefits his clients. Jim Lang is an attorney at Pender and Coward in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Jim established the firm's Waterfront Law Practices Group, along with a separate website devoted to waterfront, riparian, property rights law, maritime and admiralty law, and environmental law. A published author whose numerous articles cover a variety of waterfront law topics, Jim is also a frequent guest speaker at legal and business conferences and seminars. Before joining Pender and Coward in 2005, Jim completed a 25-year career in the U.S. Navy, starting as an E-1 fireman recruit and finishing as an O-5 commander, including 16 years as a U.S. Navy JAG attorney. He served as law clerk for the Honorable Henry Coke Morgan Jr. of the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Virginia from 2002 to 2003. Jim, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for that overly kind introduction. Yeah, she does lay it on a little thick, doesn't she? Oh, calm down. She does. does. (laughs) So, Jim, you are an environmental lawyer by trade, and I know you have a LLM in environmental law, which is the equivalent of you go to college, then you go to law school, and then you get a separate master of laws in environmental law. Is that how that works? Yeah, it is. It's an advanced legal degree you get after you got your law degree focused in one area. And at one point before you joined your current firm, I understand you were general counsel to the Atlantic Fleet? I was the environmental counsel for the U.S. Atlantic Fleet. We oversaw environmental compliance issues at all the bases east of the Mississippi River, and then the entire U.S. Atlantic Fleet operating worldwide. So you had a very good background in environmental law that somehow transferred, transformed itself into your current practice, which is primarily deals with waterfront property law? It does. We primarily serve residences and commercial businesses that are set up anywhere on the water. But when we talk about on the water, there are rivers and streams running all through Virginia, really all through the entire country. So you're never far from the water. Right. Right. And so is wed- is the concept of wetlands kind of a subcategory of what you do? It is. In addition to a variety of other areas, Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act, all forms of Clean Water Act permitting, uh, National Environmental Policy Act, Endangered Species Act, on and on. 
So uh, for somebody like me, you say wetlands and I think of, I don't know, like New Orleans or a marsh or something. I don't really have a good grasp of what it is that you do. So can you like in layman's terms, like just what are wetlands? Think about it like this, Kristen. Imagine you're standing waist high in a river. Okay. And you start walking towards the shore. Eventually, your feet are going to come out of the water, but underneath your feet, the soil is still soggy. It's still muddy. That soggy area, that transitional boundary between where the water stops and then where you get to land that's just completely dry, that strip of soggy land is a wetland. Wow. Okay. So it's the part where you don't want to wear your ons. You got to take your ons <laughs> off, right? <laughs> That's a great That's description. It. So it's the, it's the soggy part. Yes. Okay. But there's two types I want to talk about. The soggy part that we just talked about, mm-hmm. that's called an adjacent wetland because it abuts a water body. Okay. The next type of wetland is an isolated wetland. So for an isolated wetland, think about you're walking on a path through the forest. And along your path, there's low indentations where it's kind of muddy and soggy. There's no river nearby. It's from rainwater or who knows what. That's an isolated wetland. I'm sure later in our talk, we're going to cover all of the controversy about wetlands, all the court cases, all the fights back and forth. And this difference between adjacent wetlands and isolated wetlands is fueling a lot of that discussion. An isolated wetland, I mean, we just had a massive rainstorm here last night. And so there's a lot of my yard that's soggy right now. Is that an isolated wetland? That's right. And that's a really great question. Think of it this way. A wetland is an area that has water present long enough to impact the soil and the plants that grow there. So your yard got soggy after the last rainfall, but then it dried out. It wasn't soggy long enough to the vegetation. The vegetation is the key. Specific types of plants grow in wetlands that don't grow in areas where the ground is wet sometimes and dry sometimes. Wow. Like like your front yard with the fescue right. grass. That's right. Well, Jim, I've heard people say that wetlands aren't always even wet, and sometimes they're hard to identify by the naked eye. They're hard to identify by a lay person. Mm-hmm. But the people who work in the field are very good at picking out the specific kind of vegetation. I'll give you an example. Um, When I first got involved in this area where we have tidal wetlands, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. I was with a wetland specialist who showed me that wetlands plants were growing up the slope about half the distance beyond where high tide normally hits because the water soaks up that far. And me looking at it, I couldn't figure it out. But he showed me these little teeny tiny plants, and they were in an area that was being mowed farther than you would think. Okay, so... in places you wouldn't expect. So two little questions. First of all, so the main thing that you're looking at to identify wetlands is the plant life, right? That's right. There's three specific characteristics, but it ultimately comes out vegetation, plant life. Okay. And then you mentioned the tides. So if we're sitting on the beach, is anywhere that the water comes at high tide considered wetlands? Like where do the wetlands end on the beach? 
usually in Virginia, the definition is that the wetlands go to one and a half beyond the high tide range, one and a half times the high tide range. Okay. Interesting. This is fascinating. Well, you said there's three characteristics. One is plant life. Mm-hmm. What are um, the others? Very technical words. Hydrophytic vegetation is one. I'll define these in a minute. I, th- I thought you might <laughs> say that. Yeah, I was thinking hydrophytic stuff too. Yeah, I'm sure that was at the top <laughs> of your mind. Hydric soil is the next. And then hydrology is the third. So hydrophytic vegetation. Those are plants that will only grow in soil that is regularly inundated by water. And which brings us to hydric soil. If a soil is inundated with water often enough, eventually it drives out the oxygen. The soil becomes in a condition called anaerobic. Mm-hmm. And once the oxygen's out of the soil, a different kind of plant will grow there instead of your fescue lawn. Okay. And then there's hydrology, which is the connection to a navigable water body. Well, Jim, you said that it's hard for a layperson like me to identify wetlands because you look at a marsh like that's probably wetlands. But I think <laughs> one thing we, we're going to need to drill down into for the benefit of our listeners is it sounds like a professional doesn't have a difficult time identifying them. So if you're on a project, like what do you do? You figure you call somebody, Ghostbusters, like who? <laughs> that's exactly what you do. So the way this starts is your consultants comes to the property to do a delineation. The delineation is a fancy word for looking around the area to see if you've got this specialized type of vegetation and then drawing on your site map those locations where that occurs. So you know what the footprint is. And then you have the regulators come to do a confirmation. And this gets fascinating because your consultant is going to try to develop a product that provides you maximum flexibility for your project and so isn't looking to create more wetlands or expand the boundaries, but rather is looking to minimize them. And then the regulator shows up and they're looking to expand the boundary and a negotiation ensues. But at the end of that, you get a jurisdictional determination from the regulators and then you have to work within that when you submit your permit. Okay, so now we can identify a wetland, and we know what that means. Why do they matter? What, what do wetlands do? If you think back to the earlier times in our country, wetlands were thought to be bad. They were thought to be a place where bad smells come from, a place that breeds mosquitoes. And so routinely, especially in a er- coastal area like where we live, it was encouraged to fill in wetlands to both eliminate what was thought to be a nuisance and increase your land area. Like we're talking like dismal swamp stuff, right? Yeah. Look, we discussed that on a prior episode with Howard Mansfield, how George Washington, the father of our country, wanted to drain the dismal swamp and went about it for decades trying to get that done. Horrible devastation to the environment. Very common, but people didn't realize that there were environmental consequences. And with all of this filling or draining, we started discovering things like we're having a lot more flooding in places we didn't used to have flooding. Wetlands, they serve as a filter. Because think about all the pavement in a city and the rain hits that pavement and then it runs down to the river. If you have a wetlands with plants in it that separate that street from the river, it slows that rainwater down and the pollution 
can just fall out onto the ground and not get into the water, which is very important. You'll see, for example, if you're walking along a road and you look over to the river and there's a lot of plants, you'll see how it screens out all the trash. You'll see all the paper cups and the straws are stopped from getting into the river because of that wetland. Another really important thing wetlands do is it provides houses for little critters. And if you want to go catch a big striper during striper season, you better have a lot of wetlands in your area because that's where the little fish are going to grow that the big fish eat and then turn and then give you your big striper trophy. And yet another thing a wetlands does is they act as huge sponges. So again, when that big rainstorm comes, um, that water will get absorbed into a wetlands instead of uh, uh, making the river swell up and flood your neighborhood. So lots and lots of benefits from wetlands that were realized in the 1950s and 60s and led to regulation in the early 70s. Okay, and that's where we want to go next. We've, we finally woke up as a country and realized we were devastating this natural purifier and ecological stronghold. And so they came to be regulated, which is kind of the point of the discussion here is you've already identified that they can be delineated. And if you identify them and see them and have them delineated, then we got to deal with them because they're regulated. So how did they come to be regulated? The Clean Water Act in 1972 is the source of wetlands regulation. Massive statute. Wetlands is just one little piece of it. But the way it gets at all of the control of water pollution is it says that you cannot discharge a pollutant into the waters of the United States unless you have a permit. Let me break that down. Waters of the United States. Big fight over whether that soggy strip we were talking about earlier is a water of the United States. The river is a water of the United States, but is the soggy strip part of that? And the answer is yes. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1985, in a decision called Bayview versus Riverside Homes, held that a wetland that abuts a river is subject to Clean Water Act regulation. Then there were follow-on fights over whether isolated wetlands, something that's separated from the river, whether that's included or not. And in the early 90s, in a case where the city of Chicago was trying to create a landfill at a former gravel pit well away from a river but had water all the time, was subject to regulation, and the Supreme Court said no. And there's been, it's gone on and on from there. But the idea is, if you're going to use wetlands, you're going to have to minimize the amount you use, and then the amount you need to use, you're going to have to pay for them. And we can talk about how you pay for them later, because I think we're probably going to talk about mitigation and other things. Right. Well, I, I want to make something clear that maybe isn't clear from the outset. We, Jim, you and I live on the coast. And so there's a lot of coastline, there's a lot of rivers draining into the Chesapeake Bay, which drains into the Atlantic Ocean, and there's a James River, and, you know, there's just wetlands all over where we are. Is this important to somebody who lives in Des Moines, Iowa? It is. The case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now comes out of Idaho, a place called Priest Lake, Idaho, and the house is maybe an eighth of a mile from the lake. 
and it's a landowner who has a vacant lot next door. He wants to develop it, and it has plants on that lot that have the specialized kind of vegetation that make it a wetland. So the question is whether that wetland is a water of the United States. Even though it's in the middle of the country. Right. Wow. Wow. So if they're regulated, what that tells me as somebody who doesn't know about this stuff, that if they're regulated, violation of those regulations could result in penalties of some sort. Can you tell us about that? It definitely can. If you try to move forward on a project where there's wetlands, if it comes to the attention of the regulators, then you're going to hear from them. And typically the way you'll hear from them is they'll show up, they'll tell you not to do it, and then you're going to have a decision to make. Should I comply with what they're telling me to do? Should I get my wetlands consultant out here? Should I get a delineation done? Or do I want to ignore them? One of the big Supreme Court cases was the Rapanos case decided in 2006. This was a guy who, with no permit, backfilled wetlands on his land in Michigan so he could build a shopping center. Hmm. The regulator showed up and told him not to do it. And he said, this is nowhere near a a navigable water body. I can do what I want. And he ended up with the U.S. Supreme Court telling him that he was right. Oh. So we're talking about regulations. Can you give us kind of, I know we've got the Clean Water Act of 1972. Can you give us beyond that kind of just an overview of what these regulations, I know you can't go dump a bunch of plutonium in the river or something. What, 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 what is kind of the general overview of the regulations as they stand today? Well, the starting place is whether the site that you want to build on mm-hmm. your road, your pipeline, your bridge, whether there are wetlands there in the first place. Okay. And if there are, then you're going to get them delineated. You're going to have the Army Corps come and do a confirmation. And then once you have your jurisdictional determination from the Army Corps, you're going to apply for your permit. And in applying for the permit, you can expect to have discussions about whether you could modify your project to avoid the impact to the wetlands. So that's where we had a big highway project in Virginia that got sideways. They were going to use 600 acres of wetlands, and the regulators felt like there are other options where you wouldn't have to do that. But once you get through the minimization and avoidance discussion with the regulators, then you're going to have a discussion about how much you're going to have to pay to use those wetlands. And it's no different than you have to pay to use construction supplies. It's the same concept. But here, the way that you're going to pay for it, the preferred method is to use a mitigation bank. And then there are other methods if there's no mitigation bank available for you, because there are not mitigation banks for every type of wetlands impact in all locations. And you're required to use a mitigation bank in the same watershed where the project is taking place. So to be clear, you've got a project of any stripe, doesn't matter what kind. And usually these things tend to be linear, but sometimes they're building waste treatment plants, whatever. Mm-hmm. You run into some wetlands. It does, does that mean the project's dead? It sounds like there's a workaround. Oh, there are lots of workarounds. There's two types of permits, individual permits and general permits. General permits are the ones everybody wants to use. They get issued more quickly 
You have less scrutiny for, by the public and by regulatory agencies. And the Army Corps of Engineers has about 65 or 70 of these general permits. They're called nationwide permits or NWPs. Mm-hmm. And for the kind of projects that the right-of-way community would be interested in, I pulled up a couple of them. The right-of-way community would be very interested, for example, in nationwide permit number 14. And this is for linear transportation projects like you just mentioned, Kristen. Mm -hmm. So we're talking roads, highways, railways, trails, driveways, and so on. It won't cover any buildings that you want to put next to your highway. But we're talking about just the highway itself. And if you can fit your project into the qualifications for that general permit, you'll be allowed to use up to one half acre of wetlands if you're in non-tidal waters Mm -hmm. or if it's a tidal wetlands, like you're next to a a river that's tidal, then one third of an acre is your limit. And you're going to have to mitigate your impacts if they're more than a tenth of an acre, meaning you're going to be making a purchase from a mitigation bank. Well, I just want to be clear. If I... John Q. Public want to go build an addition onto my house and there's some marshy area or maybe they want want to build another structure, I'm going to have to deal with whatever wetlands are there. And it sounds like kind of a strict liability rule, like you have to deal with them or suffer the consequences. But what I want to make clear is if I am the county of whatever or city of whatever and I'm putting in a bike trail, does this apply to me? Oh, absolutely. There are exceptions written into the act, and they reflect the fact that farmers have outsized political influence in our country. Exceptions include normal farming activities. So it gives farmers the ability to plow through a wetland. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't know that. I Um, did not know that. Silviculture. So we're talking logging. Okay and ranching activities. Huh. Also, if you're doing maintenance on a structure, like a dike or a dam or a levee or bridge, that can be exempt. And then maintenance of drainage ditches. Now, installation of your drainage ditch might not be excluded, but once your drainage ditch is in, the things you need to do to maintain your drainage ditch would be excluded. Now, I just mentioned that the farmers had all of this political influence and got these exceptions written into the act. But in 1985, 13 years after the Clean Water Act was adopted, Congress saw that a lot of wetlands were being consumed through these farming activities. And so they passed a statute that said, hey, farmers, if you're going to take agricultural subsidies from the federal government, which nearly all of them do, you're not going to be able to drain wetlands anymore. So the farmers got pulled back in. Wow. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a DBE SWAM certified right-of-way acquisition firm. Based in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, Pendulum has deep connections to expertise in even the most obscure and arcane facets of right-of-way acquisition. Jim Lang and his waterfront law team are the perfect example of Pendulum Connections. You can find out more at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. Okay, well, I've learned a lot about wetlands so far. Let's take a little pause and play a little game. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Over Under Push with Jim Lang. I like our music for that. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? All right, Jim. So this is your first time on our show. So I'm assuming this is going to be your first time to play the game that I invented called Over Under Push. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you three items, okay? Three things, and we want you to tell us whether each of those things is underrated overrated or that's a push. It's aptly rated. And so we want to hear your opinion. And then at the end, I'll tell you whether or not your opinion is correct. Does that sound like fun to you? (laughs) Yes. Oh, by all means. Okay. So I'm going to tell you the three (laughs) things first, and then we'll go through them one at a time. And you can tell if, if it's overrated, underrated, or it's a push. Number one, bourbon. Number two, scotch. And number three, fireball. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, Jim Lang, bourbon, overrated, underrated, or it's a push? Um, push. What? I'm s- I knew well, I was going to get that reaction. What is, like, I'm looking for the right sound effect for this. There's probably, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know what the good sound effect is, but it, I'm sorry. You're not, you're not doing so hot so far, actually. Uh, bourbon is 100% what? Underrated. Underrated. Everybody that's should. Scotch. No. Oh boy. Underrated. Okay. Let's go. So scotch is underrated. Yes, single malts especially. Explain oh, why. You got to explain that answer because you like the taste of smoke or peat or formaldehyde. <laughs> scotch like bourbon is an acquired taste. Oh, <laughs> and I devoted my college years to acquiring that taste. <laughs> well so done. I kept it with me. <laughs> As part of my education. The, Jim, that is funny because I started drinking scotch in law school. A good friend of mine who's still a good friend says, hey, this is called a blend. It's called white label. It's good stuff. And I started drinking crappy scotch in law school <laughs> and drank it for years. And then one day made the shift to bourbon. And I've never gone back. I can't even mm-hmm. smell scotch now. I keep a bottle at the house in case somebody wants some, but I can't I can't even smell it anymore. And I never got sick I off have- it or anything. I have three bottles of very good bourbon here, along with probably fifteen different single malt scotches. So we'll be right over. Well, what's the <laughs> please, <laughs> please stop by? Tell me what kind of bourbon you keep on hand. Oh, I've forgotten because I never. <laughs> They're touch so it. important. <laughs> Jim Beam. You know what? No. You're over two, but I I do like a scotch every once in a while to mix it up. But I'm more of a bourbon person. Okay, what about uh, Fireball? What say you? Oh, Fireballs are underrated. What? They're wonderful. Oh my God. <laughs> that's, you mean the, shot, right. the shot of carbs? I think you're the first person that's completely lost over under push. Like it's a complete failure, oh but that's okay. Well, <laughs> you should see my March Madness bracket. Oh my! Oh boy! We're not going to talk about that. Well, this is sore. This is as sore. a as a who over here and a Red Raider over here. I'm not even talking about basketball today. <laughs> I understand. Well, Jim, even though Kristen basically told you you were the first guest to ever completely fail at over under push, are you willing to continue with the discussion? Yes. Okay, that's a victory for us then. <laughs> okay. Ooh, you guys that was a close one. <laughs> Thanks All for right. playing along with All my right. stupid game. So where were we? Okay. How about this? And you've kind of touched on this, Jim. How about like let's get into some typical activities that do and do not require permits. We've talked about their delineated. We've talked about the regulations. You know what? Before we do that, let's go back to the penalties. Are they monetary? Can they be criminal? What are you looking at? Or can I just like, I feel like this is one of those things where people may be like, I'll deal with it if they catch me. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of that. If you're dealing with larger projects, 
highway construction, for example, probably a lot less of what you described. More of the, I'm going to do it and see if I can get away with it, is your small residential someplace out of the way and hoping nobody ever sees it. Mm-hmm. In terms of penalties, they come in lots of flavors. Uh, at the low end, you can have regulators come and issue you an order, like a stop work order. They can issue you more intrusive orders that uh, order you to put things back the way they were. They can issue you an order that requires you to pay a penalty. And of course, you can fight all these things if you want to. You can go to court and fight these things. You can also be sued by the regulators taken into uh, federal court. Or you could be criminally prosecuted by regulators. And if you're criminally prosecuted, felony penalties can be up to 15 years in prison and the fine can be up to $250,000. Oh my gosh. It depends on whether you're charged with a negligent violation or a knowing violation. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on how much wetlands that you destroyed. And it can also depend on what sort of a record that you have. And then if all of that's not enough to get your attention, the environmental laws, including the Clean Water Act, has the ability for citizens' environmental suits. In the last five or six years, I've prosecuted one on behalf of a client and got rid of a floating junkyard using it. I've also defended one where an environmental group tried to stop the project that was going to eliminate the flooding in a 280-home development in Virginia Beach. So citizens' environmental suits are for those situations where the regulatory agencies didn't think that what you were doing was enough for them to take action on. And so the citizens stepped into the shoes of the regulators and came after you on their own. And if you get one of those citizens' environmental suits, uh, you're not going to go to jail. There's no criminal conviction for that. It's purely civil. But if you lose, you can be required to put things back the way they were, fix the problem you caused. You can be required to pay a fine to the government, and you can be required to pay the legal fees of the person who sued you. There's a lot of teeth in a citizen's environmental suit. Sounds like. Well, I have a question for you. So I, my specialty is relocation assistance. And so I'm an expert in the Uniform Act. And I know if you get in trouble because you didn't follow regulations, it's because FHWA is going to catch you, right? That's, those are the people we need to make happy. So who, you could talk about the regulators and if they catch you, who is they? Who's the FHWA of the Clean Water Act? Uh, You have two of them. You have the federal level and you have the state level. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the Clean Water Act provides the ability for states to run a program alongside the federal program. So on the federal side, you're talking about the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. At the state level, you're looking at the Department of Environmental Quality, the DEQ in Virginia. And then as well, if it's a tidal wetlands, And if the locality, if the city has set up a wetlands board, you're also looking at the wetlands board coming after you. Oh, wow. Okay. And any of these people can be triggered by the person next door who saw you fill in that marsh in your backyard and wanted to put a little attention on it. I had a client a few years ago who lives, whose property is on the Elizabeth River, industrial property. 
had a bunch of junk in the half acre behind the uh, warehouse and put a guy on a bulldozer and said, just clean it all off. I want it all smoothed over. And the way that person went about that job was to push everything into the river. And the person next door called in. And the next thing you know, you've got the EPA and the DEQ down there and my client frantically calling me. That's how these things can come about. Is there an article about that situation on your website? There is. For the listeners, Jim and his team have a fantastic website called waterfrontpropertylaw.com, which not only shows you how to get in touch with them, but they regularly publish articles of interest. And one that I saw on your website, Jim, was I think is the case you're talking about where the bulldozer had pushed a bunch of stuff into the river. And Jim, like Johnny on the spot, runs out there, jumps into the water. And you want to finish the story? (laughs) When I got there, I saw that my client had used this bulldozer and pushed chain link fencing, all kinds of trash and garbage down a very steep bank into the river. And the regulators were on site. There was a storm coming in. And the regulator said to me, in order for your client to avoid being criminally prosecuted for what has happened here, you have to get a turbidity curtain installed between the river and where all this junk is in the water. And now what's a turbidity curtain? That's my question. That was, yeah, I'm just waiting to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I heard that on Beavis and Butthead back in the 90s, but go ahead. <laughs> if you've ever seen an oil spill, you'll see around the perimeter of the spill, these floats that look sort of rectangular. They're usually yellow. They're not very high above the water, but what they're holding is a canvas curtain down under the water that's weighed down by chains. So this big curtain is created that keeps things from migrating across the curtain and getting into the river. And deploying one of these is typically done from a boat. But my client got a turbidity curtain from somebody in the area, and they were trying to deploy it from the top of a 20-foot bank, and they weren't even getting it in the water. And this storm was coming in and was going to start raining. And I climbed down the bank, got in the river, and deployed the turbidity curtain. The regulators couldn't believe it. (laughs) But when I got back up there, I got their commitment that my guy was going to be civilly prosecuted. He was going to get a fine, but he wasn't going to have a conviction, and he wasn't going to go to jail. Picks or it didn't happen. Do you have pictures of this? I do. They're oh. on my website with me in the water. Oh, I, you're, we're going to get some regulator. traffic on that website today. I'm going to go check that out. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. If you don't go to Jim's website for any other reason, go check out the pictures from this. Where Are you standing there barefoot and didn't you sustain some sort of injury to your feet? Jim. Well, you, I took off my... Look, I was at work when the call came in. Uh-huh. So I'm sitting at my desk. My client tells me about this. I jump in the car and race down there. And I see that this turbidity curtain is going no place. So I took my shoes off, climbed down the bank. And yeah, the river in that area has a lot of trash on the bottom. It, my feet got cut up a little bit. Oof. And that was, but no, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a big injury or anything like that. Well, as we learned at the beginning of this episode, you do not wear your shoes in the wetlands, not your good shoes. 
Okay. <laughs> Let's back up to where I tried to go before. Can you just run down and give us some examples of things? If you can tailor it to our industry, great. If you can't, that's okay too. But what types of things do and do not require a wetlands permit? Well, there was a highway project I worked on a few years ago where a bridge was needed to cross a small creek. And so wetlands were going to be used to build the bridge. And so delineated the wetlands, knew how many there were, and then helped that client create an offsite project. There was no mitigation banks available. So helped the client create an offsite project of compensating wetlands, create some wetlands where there were none to make up for those that they were going to use. One example. Any others? You're going to need mitigation anytime that you're building in wetlands. So, you know, airports, highways, small buildings, you know, anything in a wetlands. Another example is helping somebody last year who owned four pieces of property that together were maybe five acres. And they wanted to sell them as buildable lots and wanted to use a nationwide permit that allows that kind of residential construction. And they ran into a buzzsaw with the Army Corps of Engineers because the Army Corps was only willing to give them the amount of wetlands that the nationwide permit allows, which is like a half acre, for all four of the parcels instead of a half acre for each parcel. So you run into things like that. Mm. Whenever you're running into this kind of a problem with the regulators, you need to get an attorney like me involved. People use these consultants for the reason, Kristen, you pointed out earlier, which is like it's really hard to know if it's a wetlands or not. Mm -hmm. That's why you get these consultants in there. They're very good at sorting that out. Not me. I don't do that. But when you're starting to get pushback from the regulators on things that are going to interfere with your project, there is the ability to challenge regulatory decisions in court. You can get a court review of it. But the key here is to get your attorney involved early enough so that all of the documents and other evidence that need to be fed into the regulatory agency to lay the foundation for you to win in court have been put into the record and your consultant doesn't know how to do that. Right. And these court cases are tried not like court cases you see on TV with witnesses and all that. The entire body of evidence in a case like this consists of the documents that were fed into the regulatory agency. That's it. Hmm. And so when the regulatory agency issues its decision, the evidence, evidentiary record is closed. And if, And I'm telling you, the consultants don't know how to put together the evidentiary record you're going to need to persuade a federal judge that the regulatory agency didn't know what it was doing. So you need to have somebody like me involved if your project is running into trouble. Now, Jim, you've mentioned the Army Corps of Engineers several times. And let's talk a little bit about that. Do you deal with them? Is that part of your practice? It is. Mm -hmm. What's the nature it, of your dealings with the Army Corps? Well, the project I was telling you about with the four parcels that our client owned and they wanted to sell them as buildable lots. It was the Army Corps of Engineers advancing an interpretation of their regulations that said the half acre that's available to you to use is spread across all four of these lots. It's not a half acre for each one. And we couldn't get the Army Corps to back off from that interpretation. 
And where that leaves the client then is the choice of giving in to what the Army Corps is telling them or using us to build a record for a court case. And then the client has to make the decision whether their project is worth the investment that a court case would require. And that's a decision. Right. Well, you certainly have hit on a theme that I try to explain to my clients. This: The sooner you get me involved, the better off, the more money you're going to save on the back end. Because even in what I do in eminent domain, the lawyers are the last ones to get involved. And But we know right. the hot issues, the things that are going to cost more money, cost the agency more money that we could have solved on the front end instead of paying all the money to litigate on the back end. Well, I think it's time for another over-under push. <laughs> if he will do it, if he'll do it. If he'll do it. He had so much fun on the last one with us telling him his opinions were all wrong. All right. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Let's see how you do on this one. All right. This is over-under push. From what I understand, you are from California. Is that correct? Yes, I grew up in California. Okay. What part of California? Southern California. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So that brings us to over-under push. Your three items are the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Midwest. So we want to know if you think each of those is overrated, underrated, or it's a push. And we will start with the West Coast. And Jim, this is an easy one. Nobody can mess this up. Yeah, it's underrated. What is? Time. What is? The, the, the West East Coast. Coast. Oh, no, we're starting West Coast. Okay. Oh, the West Coast, they're all three are underrated. I've lived oh. in all three, and they're all underrated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. West Coast, underrated. You know what? That's fair. Do you, I mean, California is amazing. Hey, Jim, do you ever think of going back to Cali? I go back frequently. My family lives there. Um, <laughs> the, I don't uh, think so. The, the weather's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. The things to do there is amazing. I went to college in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Within an hour, I could be snow skiing at Big Bear, or I could be down in San Diego on the beach, or I could be in Palm. If it's cold in LA, I could be in Palm Springs enjoying the sun. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, we're going to take them one at a time, and I'll say on the West Coast, you're correct. I mean, I've only been to the West Coast a handful of times. I love California. I think it's incredible. I don't know if I could live there. I don't think I could afford to live there, but I love, love California. So you're right. Now, Midwest, you say underrated? Yes, it, definitely underrated. At least where I w- I lived in, Ohio. I went to law school in Ohio. Okay. And I was living in Ohio in Hawaii at the time that I got my scholarship to go to law school. Uh-huh. And the the scholarship was one that I could go to law school anywhere in the country. And when oh, I wow. told people that I could go anywhere I wanted, and that somebody else was going to pay for all of it, and I told them I was going to Cleveland, Ohio, they told me I was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You clearly are. Cleveland turned out to be mm-hmm. a great place to live. And I was back there again, October a year ago. Mm-hmm. And as fun as it was when I was there in the 80s, it's even better now. Yeah. That city has really upped its game. Yeah. yeah. You, Jim, I've never been to Cleveland. Do Oh, wait a minute. Yes, we did have. go to Cleveland. I went last summer. Yeah. It was, was, it was like, really I, neat. I thought you were there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there. And we we went did to, a podcast there. <laughs> we did do a podcast there. And we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I just mm-hmm. went just last month. No. Yeah. Last month, visited Milwaukee for the first time. Oh, right. In February. It's like, who goes to Milwaukee in February? Apparently, the IRWA does. Anyway, I was so enchanted by that city. I thought it was fantastic. Well, yeah. I, first of all, you are two for two now. I went to grad school at Indiana University and spent a ah. few years in Bloomington, and I had never spent any 
amount of time in the in the Midwest at all. And I I went to Ohio several times, went to Chicago, and just kind of learned about the Midwest. Totally underrated. The people are the best. It's love that part of the country. So you're two for two now. East Coast. What did you say? Well, East Coast. I've lived in Florida. I've lived in Northern Virginia. I've lived here in Hampton Roads, and I've also lived in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And all of those places were fabulous. Yeah, yeah, really great. underrated. Okay, so we just America underrated. Yeah, yeah. You are three for three. <laughs> Redemption for Jim Lang. Thanks for playing. Uh, yeah, way to come back. Way to come back. Well, Jim, I want to cover one more topic, and then we're going to sign off. And you've mentioned a couple of times this concept of a wetlands mitigation bank. Oh, thank God you're going to go into this. Sir. I, I, th- I didn't know what, he was, what that meant. It's really, really important. It's so important. It's really important. Um, <laughs> that's inside joke, listeners. Um, a wetlands mitigation bank, I think, and Jim's going to tell us this, is a tool to get around the fact that you're going to destroy some wetlands. That's a really, really basic way of saying it. But, Jim, I know it's not a brick-and-mortar bank, so could you explain what it is? Yeah, you hit on it, Dave. We're going to destroy some wetlands in the project here, but we're going to make up for it by providing some wetlands someplace else. And the reason that Mm. you have to do that is that the overall goal is that nationally we want to have no net loss of wetlands. In order to achieve that goal, if we're going to destroy some wetlands over here, we've got to create some over there. A wetlands mitigation bank has been created by an entrepreneur who went someplace and bought five or 10 acres of land that was not a wetlands. Ideally, it would be property that used to be a wetland, but somebody filled before there was a Clean Water Act. And so it's really easy to make it into a wetland again because nature's trying to make it a wetland the whole time. Right. However you make it a wetland, you have to do that. And you have to do it in a way that meets certain regulatory requirements. It has to meet certain success criteria. But once you've created the product, it's like prepackaged wetlands at a supermarket that a developer can come purchase. And so if your project is going to use, let's say, an acre of wetlands, you've got to deal with the compensation ratio. Let's talk about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. wetlands are just like when you used to shop at Sears before Sears went out of business there was good better best wetlands are the same way some wetlands are good some are better and some are really great and the ones that are really great are forested wetlands hmm. and then the wetlands that aren't so great are the ones that don't have a lot of really wonderful plants on them so if you're going to use forested wetlands let's say an acre of forested wetlands in your project you have to compensate for those on a two-to-one ratio, meaning you need to buy two acres of wetlands when you go shopping at the mitigation bank. And to give you an idea on pricing, here in Hampton Roads, if you're dealing with wetlands that are non-tidal, those are the more inexpensive um, wetlands credits to buy. Tidal wetlands are super expensive to buy. So non-tidal wetlands are going for about $100,000 an acre right now. Wow. So if you need (laughs) two acres, you're going to pay $200,000 to that entrepreneur who created that bank. Wow. And if you need tidal wetlands, you're going to pay between $500,000 and $600,000 an acre. So it's a built-in incentive for people who want to build a project to try to avoid impacting wetlands. And I saw your reaction when I told you the pricing of these things. 
environmental law as a whole discipline, the best thing that it has done for our country is it has taken costs that were never included in our price system and forced people who are using resources to pay for them. I mean, we're talking about this in the context of wetlands. We talked about all the benefits of wetlands earlier. If a person could just use wetlands and not pay for them, they're imposing costs on other people because without the wetlands there to be a sponge after a big rainstorm, my house floods, that's a cost on me. Or if the wetlands aren't there and I'm a guy who likes to go fishing for stripers and the stripers aren't there because the wetlands were destroyed and the little fish that the stripers need to survive are gone, that's taking away my recreational opportunities, the cost imposed on me. This theme is all throughout environmental law that there's activities people take undertake that use natural resources that they didn't have to pay for that impose costs on other people. And the idea here is to get those costs back into the pricing system so people who are making decisions about how they want to spend their money, like, do I want to build my project here? Do I want to build my project over there? are factoring in all of the costs that go into the project. And so they make decision that's a better decision. Wow. Fascinating. And, I, and Jim, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for putting up with us. I know you've been putting up with me in many different forms for many years. Jim and I are law partners, by the way. And thank you for staying on the show when Kristen told you you were completely incorrect. Listeners, <laughs> waterfrontpropertylaw.com. Read all about it. Great resource. Great way to get in touch with Jim and his team. Any parting thoughts, Jim? I really enjoyed our time together today. Kristen, it was good to see you again. Didn't bother me at all to go 0 for 3. Oh, good. Well, you're really 3 for 6 now, so you made up for it on the second one, for sure. Yeah, if you if you bat 500 in the majors, you're going to the Hall of Fame. There you go. That's right. All right, Thank yeah. you, Jim. Right. Yeah, Dave, it was fun. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Hi, this is Mimi Bennett, and you've been listening to Infrastructure Junkies. I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode.